This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Sanoe Torero, CFO of, of Envoy, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 640. Look, there's no rocket science. Um, you know, early stage pre-revenue biotech is a race against time or money. Um, you got to get to the next value inflection point before uh, with enough runway to raise the next round. So really, it's balancing, you know, the risk of running out of cash versus the risk of never, never getting there. And of course, it's science. So the, the outcomes are not predetermined. So you can't just have plan A. You need to finance plan B and plan C. But it's really... Um, and I think this is where sort of the, the communication skills get really important is making sure that the entire organization understands the, the strategic rationale and the strategic plan uh, and how that ties down into the day-to-day activities. It's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak with Jamie Samuels, CFO of Exuma Biotechnology. According to Jamie Samuels, Exuma's strategic advantage is largely how it's organized globally today, with operations in China, Grand Cayman, and across the U.S. with sites in West Palm Beach and San Diego. And as you'll learn, while Jamie may be a newcomer to biotech, Few of our finance leader guests likely have more experience growing businesses in China than Jamie Samuels. Our discussion with CFO Jamie Samuels begins after this. In a world that's always changing, one thing never does. Your need to adapt. Your need to evolve. Your need to grow. That's why we built Workday, a single finance, HR, and planning system that can change as your needs change and evolve as the world evolves. To learn how Workday is helping mid-size organizations embrace the future with confidence, visit us at Workday.com. Hello, we're speaking with Jamie Samuels, CFO of Exuma biotech. Jamie, welcome. Oh, glad to be here. Jamie, we always like to begin by asking our guests to look back for us and sharing uh, with us some of the experiences they feel prepared them for a, a CFO role. Sure. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what were those experiences? Well, I mean, actually, I, I don't have a traditional CFO or finance background. I'm actually a liberal arts major. Uh, by training. Uh, I was a Chinese student when all the cool kids were learning Russian and Japanese because that was the future, certainly not Chinese. Um, So I came late to finance. Uh, In fact, my first job actually was carrying a bag as a sales rep for a Taiwanese company selling medical devices. Um, And I found that while I was good at sales, it really wasn't for me. It's a little bit too much of an emotional roller coaster. Um, So my next job, I worked for an ex-BCG consultant uh, in corporate development. And what really that t- taught me was that um, my financial toolbox was lacking and I really need to go and improve that. And so my response was to go and try to get myself into the most quant oriented uh, MBA program I could. Uh, and that turned out to be the Wharton School at UPenn. Uh, and so I, I did that. And that actually led to my first uh, 
finance role, uh, which was a CFO role uh, for an operating company, uh, J&J, uh, in medical devices in, in Taiwan, uh, kind of at far ends of empire. Uh, and what you really learn is that an MBA does not teach you how to be a CFO of a small operating company. It gives you lots of tools and lots of experiences, um, but it doesn't give you uh, that compliance and controllership. Um, and so to J&J's credit, they gave me an opportunity uh, to learn all of that. J&J uh, was a very centralized, uh, decentralized company at that time. Um, you had to do a lot of things on your own with small teams to the same standards that a billion dollar opco in the US might have to do. Um, so that's really where I sort of, uh, you know, got into finance and, and learned the trade really. Um, but one of the things I learned as I progressed in J&J is that the roles get very big in terms of revenue, uh, but they're still quite narrow roles. Um, you're still missing a lot of pieces of sort of this the CFO portfolio, you know, uh, investor relations, tax, treasury, um, to a lesser extent, M&A and L&A and things like that, um, because you do get to participate in that. Uh, but I would have had to sort of switch my career and gone to uh, New Brunswick or Birsa in Belgium uh, to go pursue those things. And so I really wanted to be a standalone uh, CFO. And so my first real opportunity for that actually was uh, when I joined uh, as a CFO of uh, a company called Fusheng, um, and it was a PE-backed portfolio company. Uh, and that really brought all the lessons and learnings uh, that I'd been building uh, essentially since my role of uh, carrying a bag as a salesman uh, together. Um, and this time I didn't have the backstop of corporate. I was on my own and making these decisions and owning them for better or worse. Uh, so that's that really sort of got me to where I am today. And so here I am at Exuma. We're a U.S. company. Uh, we're an international company. We're very small. Um, we do have a, a significant operation in China. Um, and so I think this role, when I saw it, I was like, ah, this is a, this is a very good fit for me uh, based on my, my past career. So that sort of uh, gets me to where I am today. So how many years was it that you uh, lived in uh, the Far East? Right. So I, I did sort of the tour of uh, sort of greater China. So I've lived in Taiwan. Uh, Shanghai, uh, Beijing, uh, Hong Kong, and Singapore, sort of the, the Mandarin-speaking world. Um, I've probably been in Asia since before I matriculated into university, since I was 18. Um, I did a gap year when it was a bit unusual to do that. I actually had to write a letter and explain why I wanted to delay my matriculation a year. Um, but it worked out. I did well, and uh, I came back and I tested in the second year, so I was able to finish my major early. Now, maybe you can give us some historical perspective here, because uh, we, we always refer to it here in the U.S. as the opening of China. There were a number of reforms that happened, of course, in the 90s, maybe uh, in the late 80s as well. Can you share what was happening exactly? This was still pretty this was still pretty close to Tiananmen. So that was in 89. Um, I'm doing this in the beginning of 91. Uh, so at that point, China was still a little bit uh, of no-go zone. Um, it was opening up. Uh, you know, you can see Xi'an Yansen, the last company I worked for, J&J, &J, you know, they went in in 85. Um, and, you know, 
you know, the Chinese government is still very appreciative of the fact that they stuck it through the whole time. Um, and so the alternate was uh, actually going to Taiwan. Um, and I think sort of the facility, you know, at that, at that time, the educational infrastructure was better developed in Taiwan. It, it might even still be the case today. Um, and so that's how I developed my connection with Taiwan. Again, you mentioned you took a gap year undergrad. Did you study major in Chinese undergrad? Yeah, or? I did. So that was that was my major. So I was a I was a language major. Wow, what what a interesting time to have been there. Uh, that that China is really no no longer with us. That there's been so much that's changed. Yes, it's it's changed grammatically. I mean that that China doesn't exist anymore. It's it's long and long gone. Um, you know, I'd love to say it was all pre-planned and I knew that this was going to happen, um, but, I, but I can't. Um, but I did see that um, it was interesting to me, you know, language is a tool to go do something else. And so I spent a lot of my early career trying to figure out what is that something else that I can use this language uh, for. Um, the other thing is that, you know, the cultural and business skills go along with it. Um, and so you really have to be there on the ground, spending time, making the investment, building the relationship to to sort of make it live. Um, you know, this just sounds like such a, a great adventure. I'm going to maybe spend a little more time with you on this because I, how do you go about getting your first job over there? How does that happen? Sure. Um, I actually went uh, and answered an ad in a newspaper and uh at that time, my written Chinese was really good because I did my senior thesis in, in Chinese um, on why Taiwan wasn't an appropriate uh, economic developmental model for other developing nations because it's a kind of a special case. Um, and so I answered it in a newspaper and the test was in Chinese and I took it verbally and written um, and they were kind of surprised. So they, uh, I was the only uh, foreign applicant for the job. Uh, and it was a job that was both sold domestically into Taiwan as well as uh, export. You stay over there. Is there ever a time where you come back for a short while or, or do you uh, uh, you go from that job where you were a number of years to uh, Johnson and Johnson? So the, the, the sort of the interregnum was when I went to uh, went to grad school. So I stayed there for. Uh, five years uh, working two jobs, then went back to grad school. At that point, I kind of thought I might be done uh, with Taiwan, uh, but J&J picked me up and sent me right back. And they said, hey, you know, you speak the language, you have experience. Um, we have an opco, you know, they don't give CFO roles to, you know, fresh MBA grads for nothing. Um, they had a company that was in a little bit of a trouble in Taiwan. So I figured that out uh, after I started the job. <laughs> but it was a great learning experience. Otherwise, you know, looking at some of the titles that you had with J&J &J in the Far East, it, 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 it had a, sort of a traditional finance trajectory. You were director of financial planning and reporting um, for Medical China is the title of the, uh, the entity uh, for J&J. &J. Uh, and uh, anyway, it looked like some of the titles look very familiar. Uh, would you agree? Or no? Yeah, well, they wanted to make sure that I had that, fun, you know, because I'm non-traditional, um, and uh, I was a part of their international recruiting program. So actually my home country was considered Taiwan. Everything was indexed to Taiwan. Um, so they wanted to make sure I had that accountancy there. And so they gave me some big operational roles and also tried to see if I could be successful out, sort of outside of my home market of Taiwan. 
Um, and so that's what those other those other roles uh, were about, uh, particularly the financial and planning role. You know, can I run a big operations, um, you know, with 100 people in it, uh, all Chinese and doing a lot of, uh, uh, you know, basic uh, blocking and tackling accounting kind of work. So, you know, my financial planning and strategy was kind of there, but they really wanted to make sure I had a good good foundation. When you do a uh, step beyond J&J, you mentioned already for us that it was a, a private equity backed firm in Taiwan. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. was that the nature of that? Was it uh, related to uh, pharmaceuticals or healthcare? Or no, no it's completely different. It was an industrial. So it was kind of a step back um, to earlier experiences. Um and really, you know, the PE company had got them in, got themselves in with a family-owned business, um, and they needed to exit, and the family need, wanted to own the business in perpetuity. Um, so it was really helping them come up with a solution. You know, basically, you had to convince the family to buy back what they sold to the PE company at a, at a multiple. And really, that's about proving how much value the PE company had brought to the firm. And I would actually argue that they had. I mean, they helped professionalize the firm, uh, got a good footprint into Europe. Uh, you know, uh, we had done some acquisitions in Germany uh, that really got us some good channel uh, and uh, marketing and R&D capabilities because really uh, in the compressor space, um, it's really all about efficiency and the green laws in Europe are really driving the technology. Um, so it got us you know, access to all of that. Now, that's an interesting sort of twist. Am I right? Uh, it, it would seem that we're more often talking about sort of the uh, the opposite, where a PE company is trying to take over more of a family-owned organization. This was a very unusual. This was a very unusual situation. So, can you share with us what was the the circumstances that ultimately bring you back uh, stateside? And maybe it wasn't professional. Maybe there were some uh, personal, more personal aspects of life coming into play here with uh, having your roots back in the U.S. No, I mean, it's really experience. Um, You know, you and you spend as much time as I have in the Far East, you kind of get pigeonholed as that. Um, And so it's a part of broadening, even though I had a lot of experience working in the U.S. and Europe through that company, you know, we had, uh, you know, six plants in in the U.S. and Europe, uh, including union plants. Uh, but I really want to step out of that sort of pigeonhole of being, oh, you know, you're the resident China expert. Um, and so that's really what the driver was. Um, uh, you know, and I wanted to, again, you know, this, the, the company I joined um, was doing something really innovative and interesting. Um, and they were, you know, uh, a smaller, they weren't really a startup. I guess you could say they were an overnight success after 10 years of work. Um um, but they were really poised to do something special. And I figured I had a role in helping them get the next round of financing um, and uh, sort of uh, help launch them towards uh, an yeah, exit. Would you, you mind? I just want to mention it's a, it sounds interesting. It was a SaaS software company that's focused on supplying business solutions to the veterinary uh, industry. There's dollars to be spent there, I would imagine. Absolutely. Uh, fur babies and pet parents. Um, but really what we did is, um, you know, that business is really about helping the mom and pops. Um, you know, uh, veterinary industry is very, very fragmented. There's something between 26 and 28,000 veterinary clinics. A lot of them are still run by founders um, and they're small businessmen, business people. And, you know, they need help competing against the Chewies and the 1-800 pet meds. 
And, and so what we did is we really set up a suite of tools uh, to help them, uh, you know, deliver medications to home, drive revenue, drive compliance, uh, get better medical outcomes, and really meet the needs of their uh, customer population so that people weren't leaving them to uh, go start buying their meds at uh, 1-800-PET-MEDS. So we're finally up to your uh, Exuma biotechnology uh, chapter, uh, Jamie. And I want to just begin by allowing you to tell us what exactly these offerings are that uh, Exuma has been developing. So this really, this is a really interesting and exciting uh, company. So the CEO is Greg Frost, and he he did some really innovative things with his prior company, Halozyme. And really that was about taking long drawn out processes with IV drips and turning them into a subcutaneous shot. Um, that, you know, again, that's all about compliance. It's all about reducing the cost and increasing access. Um, and he had some an interesting idea, you know, CAR-T, um, so that's using a patient's modified T cells uh, to go and cure cancers. Um, it's been very successful so far in blood cancers, basically because you can live without your, <laughs> your B cells. Um, what it does is the CAR Ts go after an antigen and, and kill it, just like they would any other kind of thing. Um, and that's both, you know, that's one of the big obstacles that CAR T faces, this what they call on target, like on target with the antigen, off-tumor toxicity. These antigens exist all through your body. And um, when you introduce CAR-T, it'll go and take out all the antigen, including uh, the healthy cells. Now, if you're doing a blood cancer, it's okay if it kills everything because you can, you can replace it, but you can't live without your liver and you can't live without your stomach. So if the CAR-T goes and kills all of those uh, healthy cells, you're going to be in trouble. So what we've tried to do is uh, come up with a solution that allows the, the uh, come up with basically a logic gate so that, um, and it's a reversible logic gate. So as the CAR T floats through your blood system, um, it'll see the antigen, but it won't turn on unless it's in the micro environment of the tumor. This is something called the Warburg effect. Um, you know, to do a solid tumor, you need to be able to have these floating around in your blood system for several weeks to a month. Um, so that's one thing. Being able to uh, get CAR-T to be able to safely uh, go after solid tumors without damaging any healthy tissue. That's the first one. And the other one is really around access, uh, sort of going back to sort of the halozyme. Uh, kind of experience. Um, you know, autologous CAR-T is hard to manufacture. It's expensive. Uh, it's expensive to administer. You're immunosuppressing the patients uh, for long periods of time, especially if you're going after a solid tumor and you have to do it for several weeks. So what we're trying to do is coming up with a way to avoid the chemo, avoid the immunosuppression, and basically come up with a once-and-done injection uh, where we can transduce the cells in six hours or less. So basically the patient can come in in the morning, we draw some blood, um, we go do the transduction in about six hours, we inject it back in, and basically that's it. You're, you're done. Um, and that knocks, you know, an order of magnitude off the cost. Wow, very, very interesting. Thank you for sharing the details there. Now, can you maybe provide us with a 
sort of a short history of uh, the capital structure or what's what's been raised so far? Sure. So we're a U.S. C-Corp. Um, we have investors from the U.S. and, and China, some minority investors from China. Um, we have some operations in the Cayman Islands. Um, typically, this is the way you would uh, run a business uh, into China. Um, we actually have, unlike a lot of businesses, we actually have operations. Our global QA uh, and discovery are actually located in the Cayman Islands. Um, and then we have a holding company in Hong Kong. Uh, and then we have our subsidiaries in China. They're what they call WUFIs, uh, wholly owned foreign entities uh, in there. And they conduct uh, the research uh, and run the clinical trials uh, with our partners. So you arrive in mid-2019, uh, uh, excuse me. And uh, can, can you tell us uh, what was the opportunity that you saw? What got you, you know? What made you say this is for me? Well, I think if you're going to do China right, this is the organ. This is the way you set it up. Um, just from a from a tax perspective, an investment perspective, a regulatory perspective, it makes a lot of sense. One of the things that China has done is that it's harmonized its sort of regulatory framework to the U.S. and Europe. Um, it did that in uh, like 2017 or 2018. So really, the framework on which you run trials. Uh, is the same as uh, the U.S. or Europe. There's some slight differences where they kind of bridged uh, between the two systems. Um, and the other thing is that on a mortality-adjusted basis, um, only 10% of uh, Chinese patients have access to uh, clinical trials. And these are people who have failed other therapies, and they really should have an opportunity to uh, have one last go at it. Um, you know, these are deadly diseases and China has more uh, cancer mortality than we have patients in the U.S. Um, so that that's that seemed very compelling to me. And, and in addition to the two technologies, I think, you know, through my J&J days, we talked a lot about access um, and we talked a lot, you know, creating effective medications uh, that have broad access. And I think if we're successful, we really have an opportunity to fundamentally change how uh, cancer treatment is thought about and done. Uh, we did some research on how many uh, antigens we need to, uh, to sort of uh, develop products for to cover the panoply, the panoply of, of uh, cancer indications. And it's about, we can get 95% coverage with about 10 different markers. This being an early stage uh, company, we imagine uh, you're always keeping a close eye on cash. But uh, what what might be some of the other numbers that you keep top of mind? Yeah. So, uh, look, there's no rocket science. Um, you know, early stage pre-revenue biotech is a race against time or money. Um, you got to get to the next value inflection point before uh, with enough runway to raise the next round. So really it's balancing, you know, the risk of running out of cash versus the risk of never, never getting there. Um, and of course it's science. So the, the outcomes are not predetermined. So you can't just have plan A, you need to finance plan B and plan C, but it's really, um, and I think this is where sort of the, the communication skills get really important is making sure that the entire organization understands the you know, strategic rationale and the strategic plan uh, and how that ties down into the day-to-day -day activities. 
Um, they're really, you know, that's the context and the so what, you know, what data specifically do we need to deliver? What developmental milestone do we need to hit and by what time? Um, you know, and so it's really cash burn versus uh, contribution towards that goal. And of course, again, it's science. It's a dynamic environment in many ways. So as those changes, those plans change, how do we react as a, an organization? Um, and adjust those plans. I mean, we just went through that uh, last week. Um, you know, we need to open up another line of in vivo studies uh, because of uh, some moves that our competitor made. You succeeded in the past and built your career at J and J, a large enterprise in the past. Uh, now we find you uh, in an entrepreneurial environment. What would you tell us about making that switch? Well, I think the you know the toughest transition that people coming out of big companies make is um, you are the expert. There is no one you can call. Well, you can call up your friends and you can call up other disinterested party, but there's no one out. You know, you are now the resident expert um, and you either need to learn it or you need to know it already. Um, and especially if you're coming into a new industry, you you know, on the one hand, you need to have confidence in your abilities and the skill sets that you bring and the experiences. On the other hand, you need to be humble enough to listen and learn. Uh, and you have to have a good, pardon my French, but kind of BS detector uh, as well. You have to have an open mind, but not so open that your brain falls out. Um, uh, so, you know, making sure you learn fundamentally what's going on in the, the front end and then looking through your portfolio of tools and seeing what's there. Um, you know, and then being able to draw it up and implement it. You're not going to be able to call someone else to go implement it. The implementation person is you, right? And maybe your small team because, you know, again, every dollar that doesn't go to R&D and clinical is, it's not a dollar wasted, but it's a dollar that doesn't move you necessarily towards your goal. So you need to have a very light uh, and lean and mean team um, you know, Exuma Biotech is a small and complicated uh, international organization. And so I needed to make sure that I had the right people in the right seats uh, to be able to manage that and to be able to put together a foundation so that when it does come time to scale up, you know, when we do our crossover round, uh, when we do start going for the IPA, that there's something solid there for us to scale up on. Uh, otherwise, you're building on sand. Um, so I think that's that's the biggest transition is that, uh, um, you know, and I would say I experienced some of that working uh, at the portfolio company in Taiwan as the as the global CFO. Um, you know, it wasn't calling up New Brunswick for an answer. I had to come up with what the answer was. Well, I uh, want to just touch on uh, the COVID environment with you and how uh, the company, whether it's impacted it, in, in one way or another, what, what would you share with us? It's interesting being, uh, in clinical trials and you're always watching cash levels, but, uh, other industries are now, uh, you know, resembling your frame of mind, perhaps more. So, you know, because of our business model, it's distributed, you know, us came in China, you know, two locations in China. Um, you know, we had a short period of disruption in January and February. But beyond that, it's really business as, as usual. We're, we're used to operating, uh, you know, virtually. So it hasn't, from that 
perspective, it hasn't been much of an impact. Uh, obviously, pre-revenue companies, you're always looking for cash. Uh, the economic climate can can make that hard, you know. But I would argue that for deals that make sense, there's always money. Um, but we did look, take a hard look at our cash burn, and we we you know went to our insiders and looked for a little extra cash to push out the runway a little bit, buy us a little more optionality. Um, you know, COVID seems to me one of those you know events that you know, 10 years of change happens in about 10 months. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, and, you know, I think, you know, what I'm really looking for is a vaccine because no matter how much of our GDP comes from tech workers or others who can readily telecommunicate, we all need power, water, sewer, and transportation. And, you know, if Spain, New Zealand, and the state of Victoria and Australia have taught us is you can't really hide from this virus. Um, so until we can impart some kind of immunity, I don't think there's any return to normal. Uh, but for us as a business, um, you know, it's, we've been since February, we've been uh, full speed ahead. Excellent. Great detail there. Thank you. Um, so we always enjoy asking, uh, finance leaders just for one, uh, a moment of insight we refer to as the finance strategic moment where in the course of your career, you saw some something in the numbers uh, and you avoided a risk or pursued an opportunity. Anything come to mind? Yeah, I mean, for me, it wasn't necessarily a single moment or a hot event. It was a slow realization that any insight I was able to generate, you know, if it wasn't accessible and understandable by the, the front end of the business or the, you know, the user end, it was going to stay on my PowerPoint as pretty as I thought it would be. Um, so really it's about demystifying finance, removing jargon, you know, applying simple tools. Uh, simple tools can solve most of the problems. If I were to pick a more recent example, it might be, you know, uh, going back to the, uh, you know, the online veterinarian services, you know, adoption was a big issue. We could get people to sign up and we had built this very, you know, high powered, uh, you know, X, uh, pharma rep team to go out there and do it, but it really wasn't showing the results that we were looking for. Um, so we did something really simple, just a simple decile analysis of where our com com customers sat in terms of volume. Uh, and no surprise, top 10% deliver most of the volume. Um, but it was really dry sticking into the uh, details of what was different between the top 10% and the bottom 10%. Um, and what was interesting was, is uh, we had also just acquired a, uh, you know, sort of a pet loyalty app company, and they were actually quite successful at driving adoption. And so we kind of took a look at them and said, hey, you know, how are you guys doing it? And what we found is that they were hiring vet techs and vet veterinary nurses in who understood how the operations were working, uh, spoke the language. Uh, and we're able to drive behavior change within the hospitals, which is really what it was about. Um, so, you know, the other nice thing about decile analysis is you know who to ignore. You're never going to take a, you know, it's going to be hard to take a one and make them a 10. Uh, but, you know, let's focus on the five, sixes, and sevens and move those. So we reorganized that team uh, and, you know, got a much better result out of it at a lower cost. When we return, CFO Jamie Samuels enters the mentoring round. 
The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. So we have entered the mentoring round with CFO Jamie Samuels. Jamie, we already touched on sort of your, your door of entry or how you entered the entrepreneurial realm. But just when you first came to that company and became CFO for the first time and you felt all that responsibility uh, fall on your shoulders, if you could go back in time and offer yourself a piece of advice, what might it have been? Um, you're going to make mistakes. Uh, live with them and fix them. Uh, I've probably made every mistake in the book. I've come in and, you know, reorganized my team on day one. I've come and lived with teams that I probably shouldn't have for too long. Uh, <laughs> so live and learn. Um, you know, usually the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Uh, and so now I, I'm much more careful about sort of assessing where are we going, how much time do I have, you know, what's the urgency, who do I got, and then then make some changes around that. Um, you know, there's a, a, a very uh, strong push these days for CFOs to come in and make a mark right off the bat. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's true. Um, I usually come down and I'll write down sort of like what my top, 10 observations are and stick them in a drawer for a year and come back and look and see how right I was. Generally, I'm not too far off, um, but I think generally being a little bit more circumspect, making sure you really do have a fundal, fundamental understanding before you start pulling the trigger and just know things are going to go wrong. You're going to get mistakes. Um, anyone can lead an organization or a company in easy times. It's what you do when times are hard um, that really makes a difference, right? Well, we also ask you to reflect a little bit on your, your personal side, whether you have a part of your daily routine or a habit that you have that you think in some way has contributed to your success on the professional side. Somehow, maybe it kept you on an even keel over time. Anything you do or part of your you know, habit that you have that you think has helped you? Yeah, I mean, I think you know the, one of the sort of, you know, but maybe it's playing to the stereotypes of a CFO is that you're supposed to be the even keel person. Um, you know, the house might be on fire um, and things might be sinking, uh, but you have to be calm, cool, and collected and, you know, direct the pumps that way and the fire hoses that way. Um, you know, I think I talked about a little bit is just sort of having that humility to learn and understand that you're not necessarily the smartest person in the room. Uh, have a good detector who is the smartest person in the room and go sit next to them. Um, and always hire people that are smarter and better than you. Um, that's the difference between good quality of life and bad quality of life is how good your team is. Um, and once you've hired them, really be there for them so that they, so that they stick around. Um, and it's worth their while. Um, and again, you know, just going back and having the sort of 
you know, gaslight BS detector. You'll, you'll run into it a lot. Um, don't think those fancy sales techniques are just used externally. They get turned internally as well. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that's how I tried to earn my seat uh, at, at the table, really. And I think you have to look at it that way. You don't come in. You might come in with a position, but the way you, you earn your respect and authority is by earning your seat at the table. And that's by, uh, you know, demonstrating that you can measurably, uh, you know, help people, help people's careers, make them look good. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? Doesn't have to be a business book. No, no, I actually would. Uh, I think Traction is great. Uh, the the EOS, especially for small entrepreneurial firms, you know, it has its weaknesses, uh, but I think it's something that gives nice structure and cadence, uh, and really helps connect strategy and activity without a huge amount of bureaucratic drag. Um, that's one of the big things is, you know, if you take J&J processes and drop them into these small companies, you'll just kill everyone with bureaucracy. And that's Gino Wickman. Is that right? Gino yeah, Wickman. that's right. Uh, yep. Yep. Get a grip. Big business. Yeah. It's a pretty popular book. We uh, haven't had it mentioned before and somebody can correct me if they remember hearing it, <laughs> but I don't think so. So thank you for that, uh, Jamie. And we are up to our uh, final question. Uh, we ask you to look forward finally and tell us your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months. What would they be? Getting to the next value inflection point in the next raise. Um, we have our first inpatient very, very soon for our uh, CAR-T trial. We've got some really big in vivo milestones coming up on our uh, rapid manufacturing processes. If these things are safe and effective, I mean, uh, really revolutionary impact on can cancer patients and, you know, knock a zero or two over the off, off the cost. I mean, that's really, that's really why I do it. Um, it's, it's really exciting time. So um, getting, getting there and getting the next raise and allowing uh, the research to continue. Jamie Samuels, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.